Hello and welcome to That One Case, the podcast where lawyers share stories of the cases that influence their careers. My guest today is Bob Jenis, founding partner of Sonnen and Jenis based in the Bronx in New York. Bob is a trial attorney who specialises in representing those injured or killed due to negligence and medical malpractice. He operates in the state and federal courts of New York and New Jersey, federal courts of Connecticut, and has litigated cases in a number of other states as well. On today's show, Bob tells us the story of two cases of police misconduct and how Bob is seeking to affect change in the way police are held to account for their actions throughout New York. The first question I have for you is, is what, uh, what was the, what's the one thing that you wish they had taught you back in, I guess, 1981, um, in your case, uh, in law school that you've learned since beginning your professional practice? Um, law school, it was fine, but it had nothing to do with the reality of law and the practice of law. Um, so I kind of wish that you had more faculty that actually practiced law as, in a real sense instead of academically or what tends to happen in law schools, they find it prestigious to hire lawyers from big fancy law firms that made a ton of money. Those lawyers don't necessarily know much about law and they usually have never been to court and have never tried a case. So their concepts are all more theoretical and academic than real. And so then what to you is the, is the most important skill if you could determine just one of being a successful lawyer, do you think? Okay, two things. A, you've got to be able to turn on a dime, okay? You have to be able to adapt quickly and change quickly. And B, you have to be able to effectively communicate. You have to be able to speak on a level that you're not talking down to people, you're not talking up to people. Because if you're trying a case, I'm in New York City. In Manhattan, I could have a Nobel Prize winner next to a homeless person on my jury. I have to be able to communicate so that both understand me. Right. And I think that's a, often it's the it's kind of those softer skills that are pointed to quite often in our conversations. I think it's really interesting. Um, so that my final question that kind of leads on from that, what, what is it that you think that separates your field of law? So obviously you're, you're in PI, right? What separates your field, do you think, from any other that you could have picked when you were kind of forging your career earlier on? Well, that's one of the reasons I went into it. I like what I do. First of all, you feel good. You help people. You make a difference in their lives. And that that means something to me. You don't get paid enough to be miserable. You have to like what you do and, and think you're doing something productive in this world. Um, and, and really the second thing is, you know, um, I, I just love doing what I do. I love being in the courtroom. I miss being in the courtroom during the pandemic and I like people and I like making the world safe for one case at a time, because that's what I do. And in other fields, they don't really try cases, which gets back to your question. You know, you go into commercial practice or some, they're not trying cases, matrimonial, they're not really trying jury trials. This is where the fun jury trials are. Awesome. You mentioned uh, something about a police misconduct trial. Where where does this let, let's place it in in time and space? Where were I assume we're in the Bronx? When when did this take place? Well, actually, there's there's two that come to mind. One in the Bronx, one upstate New York, and they're very different types of police cases. And and one of them was a nice little old man who's crossing the street and gets creamed at 55 miles an hour by a car that's being negligently chased by the police. The police were the ones causing the whole problem. They were undercover. This poor guy being chased thinks that somebody is trying to rob him and, and, and hijack him. And he's trying to get away from this unmarked vehicle that's actually police. And they don't have sirens or anything going. And we got a verdict for about 28 and a quarter million on that. Um, and, and it just was just how the police lied. I had police admitting to committing perjury on the stand. They, they just did such a cover up, which speaking of cover up gets to the next trial. I tried 
case, um, a shooting case, upstate New York in Binghamton, a rural community. And um, how, how long ago was this, Bob? That's about uh, two or so years ago. We're still up on appeals on different levels. Um, interesting case on certain levels. And what happened was that we get from the law to the reality. One of the reasons in terms of reality that they refused to offer me a dime on the case, ultimately it was a $3 million verdict up there, which was the highest verdict they ever had, is that one, they'd never lost a police case before, never. Um, and two, they'd never gotten big verdicts in this particular um, venue before. It's a rural conservative area. Um, and the third thing was they figured the jury would hate my client. Now, I'm gonna get into racism 101 here. My client, A, was Hispanic. There are no Hispanics upstate New York in this community. Two, he's from Brooklyn. They hate people from the city upstate New York, okay? Three, he had a criminal record before and after this, and it's a police case. Um, one of his prior uh, convictions was for drugs in this small town. He's visiting a buddy of his who is from Brooklyn, who's ostensibly or allegedly a drug dealer up there. The police have this no-knock warrant to go get the guy because he's allegedly armed and dangerous. He was none of the above. And, um, and it's like, it's Keystone Cops. These guys could not open up, 10 of them, a wooden door. They're banging on it with like a battering ram for a minute. They're kicking. They're screaming. They can't open the goddamn door. They have, they didn't bring any of their other equipment with them. They don't have building plans. The building department's right in the police station building, okay? They did nothing. There's a big sign in front of the building, the house is for sale that this was in. They didn't even go online to get the building plans, like from the realtor with pictures. So they had not a clue what they were doing, who was in the house. They did no surveillance. Are there people there? Are they armed? Are they dangerous? Are they awake? Are they asleep? They knew nothing. So when they finally get the door open, my guy is asleep on the living room couch at 6.30 in the morning. He sees police come in. He puts his hands up. They shoot him. And, uh, and they, then they make up this claim that he was allegedly holding a gun. No gun was ever recovered is the problem. No weapons were recovered. No drugs were recovered. Um, and, uh, and that was the case. Now, one of the problems, again, reality versus law. The cop who was the shooter was the most lovable witness I've seen in my entire legal career. Okay? Incredibly lovable. And I just knew there's no way a jury will ever find against this cop. He just was too damn lovable. Um, so what we realized was that, you know, the whole negligence here was because of the city's negligence, they put this cop in a position of heightened danger. So, because put it this way, you're doing this, what's called a dynamic entry. The element of stealth and surprise is key because they want to catch you like asleep and unawake and, and, and awake, I should say, and by surprise. Well, if you're banging on the door and screaming for over a minute, I think you've lost that element. Now, what you're supposed to do in SWAT is you're supposed to have every plan of backup, every backup and alternative. So when you see plan A ain't working, go to plan B, which they never had a plan B and did not go to plan B because this should now change tactics. Because again, if you're the cop going in, okay, somebody's allegedly armed and dangerous. He now knows you're at the door. He's had time to take cover, get out his weapon and get ready. So you've got to change tactics, which they did not do. So because of all of their repeated negligence, I mean, they could have done a flashbang in the window, distraction, something, okay, nothing, so that the first thing they saw, they shot at, because he was scared. And that's what the jury found. And they found that the shooter was not negligent, but that the municipality was. 
now and they and uh, they unanimously found in our favor and awarded the largest verdict that that county ever had of three million dollars. It was never a big verdict there before. Now we get into the appellate process because first what happens is they make a motion that's an, uh, you're asking the judge to do something to throw out the verdict because New York has a weird quirk of law um, called special duty. I'm not going to bore you with what special duty is, but it's incredibly difficult to prove. And it's really there to protect the municipalities, this concept. And, um, and my point of view is, how do you hold people accountable? Or I should say, how do you, one of the purposes of the tort law system, uh, negligence is all what we call tort, injury cases, is to deter wrongful conduct. Well, if you don't hold people accountable for wrongful conduct, how do you ever deter it? So, you know, I mean, to me, it's just silly. So the original trial judge, threw out the verdict on this ground. We took an appeal, this is a federal case, to what's called the Second Circuit, which is as high as you can go other than the US Supreme Court. The Second Circuit wrote an 84-page decision, basically agreeing with me. However, they felt that the law in New York was a little unclear on this issue. So they sent it to New York's highest court to decide certain issues. So now we've submitted our brief and we're gonna to wait to argue it and we'll see what happens in the New York Court of Appeals, but we're going to change hopefully uh, for the better, New York law on this issue and hold police accountable for misconduct. Super interesting. So that's an ongoing, that's an ongoing situation trying to sort of fix this, this problem in the law. Wow. Well, good luck. I mean, that's, uh, that's, that's something. <laughs> so tell me, is, is kind of police misconduct something you come, come across often or is the, are these kind of... Uh, the... Unfortunately, yes. Um, I have a lot of police misconduct case. You know, they shoot people they shouldn't shoot. They arrest you when they shouldn't arrest you. Uh, I've seen it racially motivated, all kinds of things. Um, I do medical malpractice as well. Uh, I, you know, uh, any way somebody gets hurt, I do. And as I say, we're trying to make the world safer one case at a time. When you hold people accountable, when you protect the community from being exposed to unnecessary harm, which is really what it comes down to, Good. Let them be safer. Put me out of business. Have everybody be safe so that there's no more cases. That'd be great. So. <laughs> yeah, sure. No, that's really great. Um, I think this is really interesting. And so tell me, how has, the, how has your work been impacted by, by kind of virtual law? Like what is what is virtual lawyering like for you? You, you seem you're a very dynamic individual. So I, I can imagine that maybe the virtual thing is not not your preferred medium, right? Am I correct in that? Spot on. Um, can't stand it. First of all, we have no trials. I am itching to get back in the courtroom. I am only happy in the courtroom, or I'm happy in the courtroom, I should say. Um, and I haven't had a trial for about a year now. Uh, and God knows when they're going to start. Um, we've been doing virtual or what you call remote depositions, which you're questioning a witness, but it's just not the same thing being in the room with the person. I mean, well, I mean, first of all, I don't know how they, they, they run these these virtual depositions, but like right now you and I are looking at one another and we can only see from the shoulders up, right? So you're missing out on all of this kind of body language. You're missing out on all of the kind of those those broader interpersonal things that we pick up from one another, right? Also other things, for example, if we were in the same room together, if I am nice and you like me, we have a certain chemistry which can affect the questions and the answers. If I'm intimidating to you, again, that can affect the questions and the answers. But remotely, you really can't do either of those things. Right, right. Are there, are there, are there new tactics, new behaviors, new, new sort of ways of going about things that you've kind of adopted since then? Is there any way that you're kind of, you know, evolving with this? 
It's hard because it has forced me to slow down because what happens is when, when we're doing this remotely, I ask you a question and kind of in a normal conversation, we speak over one another. You obviously are good at this, so you haven't been doing that. Normal human beings do that and lawyers do that all the time. So what happens is as we're doing the deposition, we talk over one another, we're objecting, we're doing this, we're doing that, and now the court stenographer can't get it all down. So you really have to slow it down. Now, one of the problems with that is one of the things you're doing as a lawyer is you know where you're going and you want to have that momentum and the speed and get the person there before they can really realize what happened. But now because you're slowing it down so much, it affects that. That's interesting. That's really, really interesting. Right. You think if you were doing an interview with me live and there's some kind of sexy scandal you wanted to get me on. And if you can go fast, like um, what color, uh, you know, black, 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 black. What color is when I holding you black while well, you're holding something white? You know, it just you, you can do that kind of thing and you can't do it when it's slowed down. Sure. Yeah. So absolutely fascinating. I wonder if it I wonder how much of a difference that makes to to the verdicts of cases in either way, you know, like it certainly affects the work that you do, but I wonder how that impacts outcomes, you know? It's interesting. There've only been not that many um, remote, you know, trials, virtual trials, but apparently they've been working out pretty well for the lawyers that have been doing it. But I think you have to be kind of tech savvy. Um, you know, you have to adapt what you're doing. You have to be slower, shorter, have the right demonstratives, be facile with your computer so that the jury can see it but still pay attention to what's going on, the timing of it. Um, you know, you have to be good at that. It's like when I, I teach a lot of classes to lawyers, uh, continuing legal education, and I don't do PowerPoint. I just talk because I find if you're not good at PowerPoint, it's distracting because instead of listening to you, they're reading. Super interesting. I mean, that, yeah. Any sense of when, I don't know how it is in, in New York, any sense of when the courts are going to reopen for, for business as usual? I mean, I'm guessing not immediately certainly in the not you know imminent future hoping maybe the summer or somewhere around there because until we've got you know that herd immunity with the vaccine and maybe outdoors so that the numbers go down until then i just don't seeing it happening so if i'm lucky it'll be in the summer otherwise the fall I really like Bob's mindset of making the world safer one case at a time. And I hope that in the age of COVID, he can continue to make that change until he's back in the courtroom. My thanks to him for sharing his story today. Uh, if you do want to find out more information about Bob and his firm, you can find all the links in the show notes over at thatonecase.com. And if you enjoyed today's show, please do share it with someone you think would also find it interesting. All the details on how to listen and follow the show are at thatonecase.com. Thanks for joining us and we'll see you again next time as Ron Coleman tells us the story of that one case. <laughs>